If I had to pick a peculiar habit of language that I am most fascinated by, it would have to be the portmanteau. The conflation of two or more words together to create a brand new word. For example, biopic, frenemy, I have a few of those, jeggings, sadly I have a few of those as well, mansplain. Now, I know for a fact that I have mansplained at least once in my life, and I have also been mansplained to, most likely by frenemies who took exception to my jeggings. And of course, the most obvious portmanteau of all, podcast. But if there is one recent portmanteau that has vexed me the most lately, it's this. She session. She session. The she session. She session. The she session. During the pandemic, it became apparent that the ensuing economic downturn was hitting women harder than men for a variety of reasons. And to the extent that some experts worried this could set women's progress in the workplace back by decades. The pandemic is now largely over. Does that mean the she session is over as well? That is the question we put to Sarah Kaplan, director of the Institute for Gender and the Economy, as well as a professor of strategic management at the Rotman School of Management. Sarah joins us today at The Nexus. From a gender perspective, the pandemic has affected people asymmetrically in that it's been harder on women than it has been on men and in particular working mothers and also women of color. You're absolutely right that the evidence suggests that the pandemic has hit women and women of color harder than others for multiple reasons. The first is, of course, when schools and childcare, daycare settings close, because of our gendered expectations of who is supposed to do care work at home, that burden fell primarily on women, and it was often for many women hard to maintain their work at the same time, managing the full-time care work and homeschooling that was required during the pandemic. And so women were either having to completely leave their jobs or reduce their hours, go to part time simply because there's just not enough time in the day. But the other reason is that the pattern of job losses was very different for women and for men, in particular because of which sectors were hit predominantly by lockdowns and reduction in travel. And it's the sectors where women dominate, then that is going to lead to an increased financial and job loss impact for women. The other side of that is that a lot of the most essential work, when we talk about essential workers, the people who are delivering groceries and providing care in care homes and things like that, that is also predominantly done by women and especially women of color, immigrant women. And so we have simultaneously more women losing their jobs and the women who do have jobs becoming more essential and actually having to physically put their bodies and their health at risk in order to do their job. I would also imagine that part of the imbalance between men and women probably had something to do with the fact that we have yet to close the pay gap between men and women, and then some working moms who are also having to balance work and having their children at home, going to online school, for example, making the practical decision of saying, 
I'm making less than my spouse. Perhaps I should leave my job so that we can preserve the higher paying job, as it were. And that's what led to some of that. Is that fair to assume? Yes, I think that is true. And that's true not just in the pandemic, but most of the time in most heterosexual families. When children come, they take a lot of work, whether you are in a pandemic or not. And it is often the case that the decision is made as a household that it makes more sense for the woman to step back because the economic impact to the family as a whole will be lower. And then people say, oh, this is just our choice to do this without examining the fact that that choice was structured by these social outcomes. I think there was some perception that pre-pandemic we were making small, incremental progress towards closing pay gaps and creating some equity between men and women in the workplace, and the pandemic stalled that. Is that accurate, or is that perhaps overly simplistic in my thinking? In the last 20 years, we can't say that that much progress has been made. Certainly, the wage gap has been stuck on average about 88 cents, or you pick a number, everyone debates about exactly how to calculate it. And that's because we really haven't resolved the fundamental issues behind what's generating the wage gap. No longer is it really the case that a man and a woman in exactly the same job are being paid differently. Yes, that exists. There's plenty of high profile examples, but that's not the primary driver of the gender wage gap. The primary driver is actually what we call job segregation, which is from very early in people's careers, women are seen as more appropriate for certain kinds of roles and men for other kinds of roles. Some interesting research done in Canada that basically showed that women and men engineering students in university, that the women students were being hired potentially into tech jobs, but often in the user interface role or in the community engagement role or something like that, where the male engineers were being hired into the coding jobs. And so you start to see this segregation happening right away, and that has major economic impacts. But I will just say what the pandemic has done is not only not impeded progress, but is actually setting us back. And the UN is saying we've been set back 30 years. In terms of moving forward, hybrid work risk has the potential to become the next career killer for women. Perhaps you could explain why that is. When we talk about hybrid work, of course, we're talking much more about kind of white collar jobs. Those jobs where we do have those of us who do them have the luxury of working from home or working from an office. And of course, during the lockdown, most people were working from home. Now, as employers are thinking about opening offices back up, they're starting to think about, are we really going to be in a setting where people are going to come to work five days a week or more? Or will we move to something more like hybrid work where some people will come into the office and some won't? Employees don't actually want to come into the office every day of the week. That's becoming increasingly clear. So why could this be a career killer for women? The reason it could be a career killer is if it's only the women who choose the stay-at-home option, and therefore you get this gendered effect about who's taking the policy. It also might reduce kind of things like FaceTime or other opportunities that people have to get promotions, to get their, their work seen, to get themselves kind of connected into the right network. So there's a lot of risks if it's not universally appealing su such that people of all genders are taking advantage of it equally. What can we do to correct this? What can we do to sort of, you know, resume some of the progress, however halting it's been, to closing pay gap, keeping women in the workplace, keeping women in senior leaders positions? Like what are the important things that companies can be doing today or implementing or trying to that to solve that? 
as companies go back to work and start thinking about what policies they're going to put in place for hybrid work or work from home or whatever it is, they need to make sure that those policies are taken up equally by people of all genders. What we would call gender analytics of the policy to make sure that it is not something that is going to lead to gendered outcomes. That's one. The second is because we know that more women went part-time, left their jobs, had to take a break in order to handle the care responsibilities at home, which by the way, were not just for children, but also elder care, that companies are going to have to have a very deliberate back to work policy where they are trying to attract these women back and not set them back career wise, but give them kind of credit for all the kinds of experiences and skills that they've been developing, even while they've been away from work so that they are not set back on their career paths. And then I think they also need to think about if companies are still going through major transformations, lots of them are thinking about introducing automation, being very careful about who's getting laid off because of cost cutting and things like that, because the research shows that even if you have supposedly gender neutral policies on layoffs, like we'll just lay off the most recently hired people, or we'll just lay off the people with the lowest performance evaluations, because we know that who's been more recently hired are more likely to be women and people of color, because companies have just recently have made efforts in that area. We know that there's gender bias in performance evaluations such that women and people of color get lower performance evaluations relative to a white man, for example, with the same level of performance. So you have to even look at your supposedly gender neutral policies and think through the degree to which they actually might have a gendered or racialized impact. So those would be three things that companies could do right away. Maybe this is a kind of a cynical view, but nothing like a work shortage or a labor shortage to compel companies to pursue more equitable policies because they have to turn to different parts of the labor market to find the people that they need. Would you say that this is like necessity driving some of the changes that years of activism haven't been able to do? I agree that when you are in a situation like this where employers are worried about being able to attract talent, then those old myths and old systems and old ways of thinking are more likely to be pushed to the side and new systems and procedures put in place. Now, I hope that remains sticky even as we come out of this particular very strange moment in time with a very bifurcated economy of no growth and and high growth and a very bifurcated economy in terms of some people not being able to find jobs and other employers not being able to find people to fill the jobs. It's a very strange economy right now. And I just hope that the changes that we put in place now will stick even as we move into a different economic cycle. This has been a lot of fun. Where could we find out more about some of the subjects we've just discussed today? At the Institute for Gender and the Economy, which is a research institute that I run at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, our goal has really been to debunk a lot of these myths that are getting in the way of change. If people want to know more, they can go to gendereconomy.org. We have a whole bunch of explainers on things like parental leave, diversity training, quotas, and things like that. And I think it will help give people the ammunition they need to make the changes that they want to see. Sarah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, I hope we can do more of that in the future. Yes, thanks so much. This was really fun. Are you looking to start a bromance? See what I did there? That's growing romance, little portmanteau of my own. Are you looking to start a bromance with a strategic communications partner who understands your unique business needs? If so, then may I suggest you swipe right for Nexus. For over two decades, we've provided novel solutions to clients 
then we can do the same for you. Find us at nexuscommunications.com. That's N-E-X-U-S communications.com. Also, if you like what you heard today, then we invite you to shout it from the rooftops. Comment on us or like us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you chase the podcast dragon. The Nexus is produced by Alexa Paveo and Mertz Jaffer with editing and sound design by Justin Moy, and it's hosted by Chris Nelson. That's me, by the way. And on behalf of me, thanks for listening. <laughs>